Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadaf. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. Let's all turn to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14. The text says, In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So the question then arises, why do bad things happen to good people? And conversely, why do good things happen to bad people? Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes addresses both of these questions. But in order to understand the answer, we have to understand the context in which the text was written. So Ecclesiastes as a book was written by King Solomon. The Jewish tradition says he wrote Song of Solomon as a young man, Proverbs in his middle age, and Ecclesiastes as an old man. And why that's important is that he wrote the book in a search for meaning. And that meaning was derived from a rich king who had everything. Women, gold, palaces, power, authority, and the man who was second in wisdom only to Jesus. And with all of that, he then looked back on his life, knowing what he knew, knowing God, and being so wise, and gave us an answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? The meaning of wisdom, then, isn't something where you put a question in and you get an answer back that's very, very precise. Instead, wisdom is a general guide to steer us through life. So, one saying may mean one thing in one scenario for one person, but the result may be very, very different for a different group of people. And in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, we have Proverbs of Paradox. Meaning, Solomon basically says, a wise person does this, and an unwise person does that. So the question then remains, in the search for meaning, why do these things happen? In times in our life, we may know who is causing us pain, what is causing us pain, how it's causing us pain, but we don't know why. And that gets to the very essence of our being because there's a mismatch of expectation. If you go to the bank and tell the teller, I need $100, and you know, there's 200 in there, you'll get 100 back. But if you, all of a sudden, after leaving church, get into a car accident and are seriously injured, you don't know why. And the average human being always seeks to know. Which leads me to three points, which, as wisdom does, will help us to navigate the complexities of life. Point number one. Silence does not equal absence. I've only been married now for six years. 
my wife and I have conversations all the time. Now, in those conversations, I tend to listen a lot more than I speak. My wife is the reverse. She tends to speak a whole lot. And I'll stop there. And she'll always ask me, Elijah, are you there? What are you thinking? Are you listening to me? Because I don't say a word. But silence does not equal absence. When Jesus was on the cross, the last question he asked was, my God, my God, why hath thou forsaken me? Did Jesus get an answer? No, which means God asked God a question and God did not answer. In that context, we have to frame our outlook on life because oftentimes we will ask a question and not get an answer because God, having infinite knowledge of what will be, knows giving us an answer may not be in our best interest. And the only person to make that call is God. We can only see what was and what is. He is the one who eternally is and therefore can see what will be. Unbelievers will often say to us, how can you believe in a God when so much evil exists in the world? Well, my response always is, if you then say there is no God and all of these evil things just happen, or as a function of chance, is the response, that's how things are, any more satisfying. Because you essentially go from purposeful silence with intent to purposeless silence devoid of any meaning. So, let's dissect Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider. So we learn three things from the first half of the verse. Number one, day. The Hebrew word for day is yam, which can mean a literal day, sunrise to sunset. But it can also mean an indefinite period of time, as in, God told Adam, in the very day you eat the fruit of the tree. Adam died at more than 900 years old, which means Adam's day was almost 1,000 years. In the same context, there will be different seasons in our life. Our day may be 10 minutes. Our day may be a year. Or our day may be an entire lifetime. So there is no time stamp on the days. There are also two types of days, days of prosperity and days of adversity. Now, as Americans, we're inclined to think prosperity means wealth, riches, fame, resources. But the Hebrew meaning of prosperity actually means cheerful, at ease, to be in favor, glad, or merry. Adversity means distress, grief, sorrow, or vexation, which means these days have a lot to do with internal perception as opposed to external circumstances. 
which means when you're 20 years old and your day of adversity is a bad hair day, when you're 65 years old, simple things like that don't even phase into your, into your thought process. On the same token, did you know there are 7 billion people on planet Earth? 3.5 billion people live on less than $3 a day. The average American makes $50,000 a year. So to someone in sub-Saharan Africa, your worst day in New York is paradise to them. It's your adversity, it's their prosperity. And keep in mind, the text doesn't say not if in those days, but in those days. It's a definitive statement, meaning the days will not discriminate. So you can be the most devout, holy person, you're going to have adversity. You may be the most malicious, evil, and wicked person, you're going to have some success. The days do not discriminate. They're equal opportunity. Number three, it tells us how to respond in those days. It says to be happy and to consider, which means prosperity equals celebration and adversity equals contemplation. Someone write that down. That's good. Prosperity equals celebration and adversity equals contemplation. The best way I ever heard this explained was by a pastor, Keith Battle, from Zion Church in the D.C. area. And the way he framed that pearl of wisdom is this. All of us in life are enrolled in a school. The teacher of that school is God. Everyone starts on level one. The goal is to get to level 10 and to graduate. Level one is pretty easy. It's entry level Christian issues. The tests are things like, do you love Jesus? Check mark, yes, you pass, hooray. There's snack time, everyone takes a nap, you get gold stars, it's pretty low-end material. God will probably tell you, we're going to have a test on this day. You know what the test is going to be on. You're very, very well prepared. But the problem is that in order to advance to levels 2, 3, 4, 5 through 10, you have to be scrutinized. You have to show God what you know. So he'll start giving you harder tests. And the material gets more difficult, but sometimes there'll be pop quizzes. You won't know where they're coming from. So it's your responsibility to prepare in advance. But here's the thing. When we're sitting in class, people can often get mad at the test. They'll say, God, why are you testing me? But you're in school. That's a point of school to make you better. You can actually look at the students around you who are either not doing as well or doing better and saying, hey, why are they doing it that way? Why are they getting ahead? And why am I not doing so well? But here's the problem. Only you can take your test. Someone else can't take the test for you. 
So your primary responsibility is to worry about you. And here's the thing. The test never creates the problem. The problem is in you, and the test reveals and exposes your deficiencies. There are some people who may be on level two or three their entire life. God gives them the same test, the same questions. They either say, man, God, I don't like this stuff. I quit. They'll look at someone else, become frustrated, and never learn. But the person who considers will say, what has this adversity re revealed in me that I ought to change? They begin studying. They begin praying. They begin fasting. So by the time they get that test again, they're going to ace it. They move on to the next level. If you fight testing or reject the test giver, you are forever doomed to fail the same test and stay in the same grade. Which leads me to my second point. Adversity builds character. Prosperity feeds complacency. Say that again. Adversity builds character. Prosperity feeds complacency. One of my seminary professors, who's the most brilliant man I've ever met, has a great line. He says, crisis is the door that God uses to enter into our lives. Because adversity is actually the catalyst that breaks you out of shell and compels you to be better. Because in times of prosperity, there's no incentive, either internal or external, to become better. Consider as well that sometimes we are given talents or gifts, and we think we, we may belong on level 10, but our character hasn't developed enough to put us where we need to go. For example, you may have a strong interpersonal gift to comfort other people, but you give so much of yourself, you have yet to develop the character to actually tell people no, leading yourself to an early burnout. Or for example, you may be a brilliant whatever it is that you do, but you have one particular vice where if God placed you in a position of authority, you would succumb to temptations and pressures and ultimately fail because your character hasn't reached that point yet. Consider also that character building can only happen if God already knows what effect the adversity will have because he is infinite, we are finite. When people ask me what my favorite movie is, I don't give them the safe Christian answer. I give them the real answer. And that movie is Braveheart. And I'll tell you why. Mel Gibson plays William Wallace. William Wallace is a well-spoken, French-speaking, educated man. And all he wanted to do was live a life of peace in Scotland. He found a pretty girl, he built a house, he had a nice plot of land. He didn't really bother anybody. But then, 
The English king Longshanks wanted more control of William Wallace's home territory, Scotland. So he taxed the more, he beat a few guys up. But there were a bunch of rabble-rousers who were saying, listen, man, we don't like you. You need to go back to England where Scotsmen leave us alone. So then Longshanks one day had a diabolical plan. He said, I'm going to enact this kind of old-school Latin program where whenever a Scottish woman gets married, we're going to have our soldiers sleep with them on their wedding night. The goal was to breed out the Scots out of their own homeland. Fast forward a little bit. So William Wallace is in his hometown one day, and English soldiers come looking for his girl. They say she's pretty, they see that she's pretty, and they want her for themselves. But she's a firecracker. So she runs around, she cracks a few pots, she kicks one in the private area. It's a whole scene. But then they finally get a hold of her. And they execute her in public. It was a gruesome scene because you know William Wallace's intent was always positive. But then what happened? That one event, that one single event in William Wallace's life changed him. Because now there was an external pressure and adversity which now compelled him. And here's the thing. William Wallace was Braveheart. Braveheart was already inside William Wallace. But something had to break the outer shell to bring the Braveheart out. So what happened? They took his wife. He was furious. And that one single event now catalyzed a chain reaction where he, William Wallace, led an entire nation of poorly trained, non-educated, starving men who knew nothing about fighting, and they outmatched and outfought a far superior English army. Had that event never happened, no one would be talking about William Wallace to this day. The Braveheart was already inside. He was born Braveheart, but adversity had to bring Braveheart to life. James 1, verse 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, the word perseverance is my favorite word in Greek. It's translated literally, hupo mene, which means remain under. And what does that remaining under, what does that pressing, what does that adversity do? It finishes the work in you so that you may be mature, not lacking anything. Romans 5, 3 to 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, hupomene, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, but God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, the key take-home point here is that it's not blind hope, it's not misdirected hope, but it's hope in something. Hope only becomes real when the focus of that hope is a fixed point of reference. 
something greater than you that can fill you up with a sense of purpose. Let's go back to our verse, the last half. Consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Human beings can waver between two opinions. God doesn't. The ultimate fixed point of reference in all of our lives is God. God is good, God is love, and God is just. So when he makes days, he does so with positive intent. There is no evil in God. The text says God made. The Hebrew root of made is from something. So what is God making these days from? He's making it from God who is good. So in both scenarios, prosperity and adversity, God knowing what will happen does so with your best interests in mind. And finally, the verse gives us the answer to why, so that man will not discover. Because if man could discover, what would they do? Take their eyes off of God. Which leads into my last point. The answer to the question of why is actually another question. Who? And the correct answer to that question is what will bring you peace. Let me tell you a story. It was 2011. My wife and I had been trying to get pregnant for months. We tried everything. Basal temperature monitors, calendars, just, it was ridiculous. And then Thanksgiving of 2011, my wife said, I'm pregnant. We were ecstatic. But then a few weeks into it, my wife began getting sick. She had morning sickness, but it was more than morning sickness. It was a, a deep ache and pain. It was, she just looked unwell all the time. So we got some screening blood work done, and the results were highly abnormal. Then we had an ultrasound done, and I remember the moment in the office because the tech took one look and a, a jolt of apprehension hit her face. And I kept asking her, is there something wrong? And she kept on saying, the doctor will be in soon. Fast forward. It turns out we were going to have a baby girl whose birthday would be not too far away from my father's. However, what that baby girl suffered from was trisomy 9 mosaicism. And if you're wondering what that is, that's exactly the point. It is something so rare, as per the geneticist, there's a one in a billion chance of it happening. Which means my wife and I were more likely to win the lottery, be struck by lightning, and be hit in an earthquake in the same year than for this to happen. And why it was so rare, basically, is that her DNA at one point made an extra copy of itself. 
half of the cells were normal, the other half were abnormal, and the abnormal part was so out of the park, it made everything else malfunction. Now here was the problem. Every doctor we went to, the first question out of their mouth was, have you considered an abortion? First question, not hello, how are you doing? And here's the reason why. The disease process is so dangerous. If the child survives to nine months, when they are born, they're going to have some kind of catastrophic impairment. Nine times out of 10, the impairment is mental, physical, which means the child will inside be unwell and have some kind of deformity on the outside. If the child did look normal, there was a 99.9% .9 chance they would have a severe deficiency throughout their entire life. So here's the dilemma, being a man and woman of faith. We had to reconcile that reality, that adversity, with our faith. And there was no easy answer. And the sad thing is that my wife and I, both being physicians, to be quite honest, if we met a couple in the same predicament, we probably may have leaped that initial conclusion first. Have you considered? Because that's the easy way out. There's a problem, and now the problem goes away. But there was something inside of us which said, that just doesn't feel right. We didn't, we didn't know why. We had no answer. And here's a difficulty where reality meets biblical teaching. There are some people who may have said no originally because the stress of that event would have broken the marriage up. There are some people who may have lacked the financial resource or the social resources to actually rear that child. So the decision would become a non-issue. We didn't have that luxury. Because we knew when, if she was born, we would do everything we would need to in order to ensure that her life was as comfortable as possible. Even if it meant living a life filled with painful surgeries, medication, and treatment, and that would end prematurely by the, by the age of six or seven. So we cried, we fasted, we prayed, and it was tough. It wasn't pretty. We didn't walk around and say, everything, everything is great. It wasn't great. I would go to work, and I'm not an emotional guy, and I would cry for 20 minutes before I went to work. I'd break down. And for me, that says a lot. My wife was a pediatrician. She would go to work knowing that she had a problem growing inside of her and treat young babies who are healthy and young children. For her, it was even more difficult. It was catastrophic. And here's the problem. That same day of adversity was interpreted differently. For my wife, it was an emotional problem because she was a mother. She wanted to love and care and nurture, and she knew everything she did would mean nothing. She had to just wait and see what would happen. For me, it was a cerebral battle. 
I kept on asking God, why is this happening? What are you trying to teach me? I searched the word but couldn't find an answer. And the more we progressed, even some of the most holy places we went to, they said, give up. Let it go. In other words, curse God and die. But we said, no, we can't do that. It didn't feel right. And then one day I remember I went into a Thursday night teaching session and I was just so uneasy and confused. I just, my mind was cloudy. And I was sitting in bed and then a voice came to me. If you do give up, what would differentiate you from a non-believer? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So I said, okay. We're going to pray about it some more. We're going to come together as a family. And we're going to reorganize ourselves. And what ended up happening is a decision was made for us. And at one point, her heart stopped beating, and things progressed naturally. And the decision was taken out of our hands. Now, that was the most difficult adversity I had experienced up until that point in my entire life. But then I found this verse, and I began considering. I began thinking to myself, what has this taught me? What, it, what has God taught me about the events in our life and, how, and what effect that should have on us? And I began to, to hear Pastor Battle's sermon, and I realized that God is only going to give you a test which you're capable of passing. And the response when you consider isn't to get mad at the test. The response isn't to get upset when there's silence because the farther up you go, the more and more silence there is. When you're going for your PhD or your doctorate, sometimes the teacher says nothing. They just say, here are your assignments, go ahead and do it, and they will say not a word because the responsibility is different. And I began to realize the test he was giving us was open book. And I looked at all the biblical figures in the word. And the man who had the ultimate bad day was Jesus. On his day of adversity, he committed no sin. Yet he was rejected and he suffered. But I'm sure he considered all the lives he would save. The conquering of sin and death. And the liberation of us all by enduring the pain of the cross. As long as you keep your hope, your faith, your eyes, and your entire gaze focused on Christ, it is that hope in him which will allow you to endure the storm. Because think about this. In the book of Ephesians, it talks about the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. Which means, number one, you're given armor because you're intended to fight. 
And the thing that literally shields your mind and protects your heart is the comprehension and the contemplation that Christ already died, sets you free, and his righteousness, which is implanted in you, will allow you to endure the storm. So I want everyone here today to consider, to contemplate, and to realize that I may be a nobody, that none of this is meant to dismiss or in any way minimize anyone's struggles. But I am a nobody who has come to realize that there is a somebody who has freed everybody and given you the strength, the power, and the conviction when times get tough, when times get rough, you don't lay down. You stand up and you fight because Jesus never gave up any one of us. And in order for the resurrection to happen, he must first die. So when you're in doubt, when you're hazy, look within yourself, look to God and realize, had he not suffered, had David not walked up to Goliath and said, how dare this uncircumcised Philistine? Had Elijah not walked to the top of Mount Carmel and called down fire from heaven, had Moses not left Egypt and said, Pharaoh, let my people go, that's what this faith is all about. Power and strength and victory, not in ourselves, but in Christ. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Dr. Sadako. For more valuable information and resources, please visit chesadako.com.